So Meredith Berkman had her 15 minutes of fame, and it's likely that you don't even know who she was. What was her claim to fame? She filed one of the first anti-fat lawsuits. So a little backstory. Back in 2001, the Good Housekeeping Institute tested a snack food called Pirate's Booty. Anybody here fans of Pirate's Booty? Sell it at Trader Joe's. It's this flavored, delicious, puff rice snack food. But when the Good Housekeeping Institute tested it, they discovered that it contained a lot more fat and calories than was advertised on the label. And so when this became known, the manufacturer basically blamed it on the manufacturing process, immediately recalled it from the stores, and then reissued it with changed labels. But here's what this article I was reading said about the incident. Nearly four months after the recall, Berkman filed a $50 million class action lawsuit against Robert's Foods, claiming, quote, emotional distress and weight gain, mental anguish, outrage, and indignation. The case claimed to represent all people everywhere who ruined their diets and had to spend more time at the gym because they ate mislabeled pirate's booty. The article then says, and I quote, it looks like eating too much pirate's booty added too much booty to Miss Berkman's booty. <laughs> Now, why do I begin this morning by talking about booty? Well, it's because this story tells us something about our culture. We live in a very, very litigious society. Have you been injured? Larry H. Parker got me $2.1 million. Let Larry H. Parker fight for you. Anyone else grow up on that commercial? That guy's still around, right? Did you realize that over 70% of the world's lawyers live right here in the United States? Over 70% of the world's lawyers live right here in the U.S. That's 1,116,967, or one for every 300 people. We as a culture, a society, spend about 2.2% of our gross domestic product, roughly $310 billion a year, or about $1,000 for each person in our country on tort litigation. That's a lot of litigation, isn't it? Now, why am I talking about litigation and our society and all this stuff? It's because we, of course, are not the first culture in the history of the world to be a litigious society. We've been looking together at a letter that the Apostle Paul, who was a leader in the early church, wrote to a small church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And he wrote this letter because he had planted this church, he started it himself, he lived there for about 18 months, knew these people, loved this church, he left, and about three years after he had left, he had gotten news that there was all kinds of problems that were surfacing in the church. And so kind of alarmed by these problems, he takes up pen and paper and writes this church a personal letter. And so it's kind of a recognition off the bat that as we open this book, we're actually reading someone else's mail. It's a letter directed to this church about a very specific problems they were having. And one of the issues that this church faced that existed in this highly litigious culture of Corinth, in fact, uh, one person uh, writing in the day said that Corinthian, the culture of Corinth was one where lawyers innumerable were twisting judgment. It could be said about Los Angeles too, couldn't it? 
Well, that was first century Corinth. And it turns out that within the church, there were some Christians who were raising lawsuits and were suing other Christians in the church. And Paul gets news of this, and he addresses the issue. I don't know why every time... Do you guys realize that in our first service, this does not happen to me? I think it's something about the... Um, about the Apple TV gods that are inhabiting this second service. That was a joke. I don't believe there are Apple TV gods. I just have to kill some time while I'm trying to get this thing back up. Let's see. It's loading. There it is. You know, every, every week, I'm sure on the recording, people, I always record the second service, and people are always probably asking, like, what on earth is happening every week with that stupid guy's PowerPoint presentation that he's given? I don't know. Anyway, where were we? Oh yeah, Christians were taking other Christians to court. Paul gets news of this, and he's absolutely outraged by it. You know, uh, Meredith Berkman was outraged by mislabeled pirate's booty. Well, Paul was outraged by Christians taking other Christians to court. Look what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And then in verse 4, he says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. It's interesting, back in chapter 3, Paul is using all this sarcasm, and he says, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this to shame you, but here, he says, now I want to shame you. He says, now you guys are doing some downright embarrassing, shameful stuff. You are suing one another. But it raises a question for us. I mean, we can get uh, the text we were looking at last week about incest in the church. We get why that was an outrage and a real shocker. But what on earth does Paul find so shocking and outrageous about a Christian going to court to solve a, an issue of litigation with another Christian? I mean, every law court in the Western world has for centuries seen Christians bringing suit against one another. I mean, it seems in many ways a normal way of settling disputes and doing business. And it's likely that there are some of you, maybe most of you, who know at least one Christian who has at some time in their life needed to take another Christian to court. Maybe to go to courts to solve some issue with a divorce or maybe some business deal that went bad. And so why does Paul find this so outrageous and so shocking? Well, I think a little background would be helpful. And so I want to just spend a few minutes talking with you about how the legal system worked in the first century city of Corinth. So can we do that for a bit? Can we just kind of talk a little bit about some historical background? You guys game with that? Yeah, let's do it. Do you recognize her? This is Eustitia, the god of justice in the ancient Greco-Roman Empire. And you'll notice a couple things about Eustitia. One is that she's holding uh, these measures in her hands, which of course reflects that the role of a juror or a justice is to measure the merits of the case. And then you also will notice that she is blind, or her eyes are covered. And why are her eyes covered? Well, it's because justice is supposed to be blind. In other words, it's not supposed to pay attention to someone's status or their wealth or who they are or who they aren't. Rather, justice should be impartial. But at first century Corinth, 
Lady Eustacea, Lady Justice, was peeking underneath the blindfold. And she was always paying attention to who was standing before her. And the courts, it was just extraordinarily well-known in the ancient world, were incredibly partial in the Greco-Roman world. And so, for example, in, in the city of Corinth, your status and your wealth was very much connected to the amount of justice you would expect to receive in court. In fact, someone of lower status typically couldn't take somebody of higher status to court. You couldn't sue them. And so if you were a child, for example, you couldn't sue a parent. If you were a slave, you couldn't sue a master. If you were poor, you couldn't sue a rich person. But if you were of higher status, it was free game. You could take somebody of equal status or somebody of lower status to court, and you could basically sue them. It was also the case, it was very common that in uh, the, the, the courts, that when you had a jury or you had a judge, that they were almost always somebody of high rank and status and usually had a lot of money. And so in some ways, it was kind of like a good old boys club. And so if you had a lot of money and you took somebody who was poor to court with you and the jury was of high wealth in your city, you kind of knew each other, you ran in the same circles, and they would overlook, you know, issues and they would usually find in your favor. It was also the case that uh, uh, witnesses on the stands were trusted only to the degree to which they had money. One writer in the first century, Juvenal, complained, he said, the first question that will be asked a, a witness will be about his wealth, and the last will be about his character. A man's word is believed in exact proportion to the amount of cash he keeps in a strong box. And so another person from the first century put it like this. He said, of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone and the poor suitor can never succeed? And so you can imagine maybe a scenario something like this arising in the church in Corinth. There are two men, there's Bill and there's Bob. And Bill is a man of great wealth and status in the culture, and Bob is he's on hard luck, and so because he's down on his luck, he takes his last horse and he sells the horse to Bill. Bill buys the horse, but a month later, the horse underneath Bill's care dies. And uh, Bill goes back to Bob and says, Bob, what gives? You know, you sold me a bad horse. And Bob's like, you know, I've had that horse for years, and the horse has never given me any problems. It was perfectly healthy. You had all of the chance in the world to investigate and kind of look at the horse. No, the horse is your problem. And Bill's like, no, the horse is your problem. Give me my money back. I want a refund for the horse. And there's this dispute. There's this grievance. So what happens? Well, wealthy Bill drags off church-going friend Bob to church. I mean, to, to court. And he has him tried. And as he's there in court, no doubt Bill's wealthy buddies are in the jury, and of course they find in favor of Bill. And so do you see what was happening is there was injustice going on within the culture and the same kind of unjust little status games. And, and the other thing that would oftentimes happen in court, and this would be no surprise if you've been around listening to our series in the book of uh, Corinthians, is uh, the, the lawyers would put on this oratory display that wouldn't just be about getting money for the, the person who was you know, wealthy. They actually would be there to honor the person who was, who was uh, wealthy and then to shame the poor person who was drug off to court. And so it was a real bad deal in the first century. 
And it seems that you had Christians who were wealthy who were dragging off their poor neighbors in church to court, and Paul's like, this is an outrage. And so notice, in place of Christians dragging off Christians into these unjust courts, Paul proposes two solutions. He says, look, let me give you two alternative courses of action when you find yourself in a place where there's a grievance, when the horse dies, uh, when the marriage is starting to fall apart and you've got to make some hard decisions, uh, when the business deal goes south, when the renter is failing to pay rent. Let me give you two different courses of action that you can take instead of dragging this guy off to court. And just a little word about these two courses to action that Paul is going to propose. They are, to be sure, radically countercultural. They are very different and they are hard, but they're also beautiful. And I want you to see what Paul invites us as well as the church of Corinth into in the midst of our litigious culture and society in which we live. And notice the first course of action we should take if there's some grievance, some issue. The first course of action is that you should take your grievance to some wise arbiter within the church. You should bring your grievance not to the courts, not before the ungodly, what Paul calls, not before these unrighteous, unjust courts, but he says instead, bring your grievance before a wise and godly leader within the church who can act as an arbiter. Look at what he says in verse 1 again. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of what? Instead of the saints. He says, don't take your case out there. Take your case to somebody within the church. He says it again in verse 4. So if you have such matters, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there was no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? So he says, look, if you have an issue, find somebody in the church who's wise enough to decide a dispute and let them arbitrate the case. Now, of course, one reason why this is a good idea is because litigation is incredibly expensive, right? I mean, this is just a cheaper option. If instead of dragging somebody off to a lawyer and uh, getting billed at $300 or $600 or $800 or some crazy astronomical billable rate, take it to a a qualified, competent Christian leader, and you're going to save yourself some money. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this last week, and he said, look, he said, you know, and he himself actually is a lawyer, and and he said, you know, when my wife and I went through a divorce, he said, it cost me $80,000. It cost her $200,000. He said, we could have paid for both of our daughters to go through college for that but instead we're burning it. And he said, we ended up at the end in the same place we were in the beginning. And of course, the reason why cases drag on is because of billable hours, right? I mean, that's the name of the game. And when you are hurting and you're angry because your business partner burned you or your spouse betrayed you, and you're, that's, a, those, that's a easy soil to exploit, Oh, you, I can't believe it that they do that. We got to get them back. Come on, honey. We're going we're gonna to go after them. We're going to get you everything you deserve, and we're going to take them down. And then the vice versa, the same thing is happening on the other end. 
And it just goes on and on and on. And so Paul says, don't take your cases with, a, with another believer to, to courts and go down that path. Take it before somebody who is wise within the church. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't say do this because it's going to save you money, though it certainly will. He gives a different reason, and the reason he gives is in some ways, I I think to most of our ears, it sounds shocking, it's surprising. He says, take it to somebody in the church because followers of Jesus ought to be uniquely qualified to render wise and sound judgments. And notice why that's the case. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? And so he's making here an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, if you are going to be competent at one point in the future to judge the cosmos and to judge the angels, the greater, I mean, those are far greater matters. Are you not competent to judge earthly matters? And so he looks at us and he says, look, didn't you know you're going to judge the angels? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? And we say, actually, Paul, we had no idea. What are you talking about? Is anybody here with me on that? I mean, Paul has been, can we just be honest? Paul has been downright confusing when it comes to the issue of judgment in this book. I mean, in chapter three, he basically says, look, you do not pronounce judgment. It is the Lord who judges. And then in chapter five, we saw last week, he says, actually, the church is responsible to judge those within the church, but it's not our responsibility to judge those outside of the church. And then in chapter six, he says, but don't you know, we're all going to judge the world. <laughs> You're like, Paul, what is it? Do we judge? Do we not judge? Do we judge those inside, judge outside? What is the deal? How are we even think about this? And if you're new to Christianity, you just be thinking like, what kind of arrogant, pompous people do you think you are? You all are going to judge the angels? Like, I know you too well. I wouldn't put that, that responsibility in your hands. Is God? What are we talking about? Well, I think to understand what Paul is talking about here, you need to put this claim in context of the grand unfolding story that the Bible tells about the world. You see, in the grand unfolding narrative of the Bible, the Bible names our present condition, the present world that we inhabit, the way we all know know it to be. It is an unjust place full of violence and deception and lies, and there's good stuff here, and and there's people with dignity who are working for, for the good, but we all know if you've worked in the system, there is way too much injustice, way too much darkness, and it 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 hurts sometimes, right? And the Bible says, yes, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But God has acted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus to defeat the darkness and to establish his good and saving and justice-bringing healing rule in the world. And one day, Christ will return as the world's true king and ruler and judge And when Christ returns, he will put everything to rights and he will decide with fairness for the poor. In fact, Isaiah put it like this. It says, his delight, speaking of Jesus as the world's true king and ruler, it says, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord 
and he shall not judge by what his eyes see. He will truly be impartial. And he will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity or fairness for the meek. One day, the the prophet said, the day is coming when all of the injustice and all the bribery and all the, the wrong end of the stick that the poor and the low status were experiencing, like that will all be overturned. And Christ will rule and reign as the world's true judge. And on that day, Isaiah puts it like this, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, the instruments of warfare will be turned into instruments of farming to bring fruitfulness in the world. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. And all of us who hear those words would say, glory, glory, hallelujah. God's justice-bringing peaceable kingdom is going to be established on earth. But here's the vision. Here's the glory that the, the, the New Testament gives for those who are followers of Jesus. You and I who are united with Jesus by faith, who have died with Christ, who have been raised with Christ, one day when Christ returns, we are going to become co-regents and co-rulers and co-judges with him. Or put it like this, God is going to put into our care and he's going to call us to have weighty responsibility in the age to come to administer his justice healing rule in the world to be those people who decide with equity and fairness for the poor and for the meek. We will share in his rule. This is the vision God has for us. And this isn't just grounded in this vision for the future. It also goes back to the past, to the very origin story in Genesis. When we're called, when God calls all things into being and he creates humanity and he gives us this high and this dignified and this honorable role in creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. God, of course, is the ruler of the world, but God creates humanity and he gives us, he delegates authority to us to be rulers in his stead and to administer his wise and his justice bringing, his healing, his, his, his wise stewardship in all creation. And that vocation, that call that was lost in the beginning will be restored in the end. And so our ultimate end is not simply to be forgiven. You know, you've seen those bumper stickers, Christians aren't perfect, they're just what? But you're far more than just forgiven. God is forming and shaping us to be a people of character and virtue and wisdom who can administer justice and wise rule in all of creation. That is our future vocation. And what he's telling us in this text is that future vocation has present implications. And if this is who we will be, then this is who we should start becoming right now. In other words, right now, we are training for future reigning. Right now, we are being shaped by God to be people of justice and virtue and character so that we might administer wise and loving leadership in this world. This is God's vision for humanity. This is God's vision for you. How are you doing on training, by the way? 
So Paul says, look, there ought to be some of you who are a little bit further advanced on that journey, who are actually starting to develop real wisdom and a real sense of justice and rightness in the world. And he says, look, there's got to be some wise people in your church, Corinthians. You are the people who are boasting about all your wise people in the church. Is there not one person in your church who you could take this case before and they would be able to give wisdom and be able to give some direction? So, of course, Paul is actually inviting us to consider this course of action. And I know for some of us it's a stretch and it's difficult because usually, I mean, not usually, it takes two to tango. And sometimes you can have a marriage that's falling apart in a church, two followers of Jesus, and one is willing to go to arbitration before somebody in the church. The other is like, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm going to get what's mine and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and it just drags the thing out and you're not responsible for it. But as much as it's within us, Paul is, is inviting us to take our issues, our grievances into the body of Christ so that the church can be the church and take responsibility for those within the church. And so I want to invite you, maybe you're in this place right now, I don't know where you guys are at, but maybe you're in a place where you're actually in some grievance with another Christian and litigation kind of is on the horizon. Um, come and, and talk to, to the leaders of the church and we can hook you up with some, some wise, godly leaders, men and women who can help arbitrate for you. So that's the first course of action. He says you, you, you can take your grievance not to the course courts, but before wise and godly arbitrators within the church. Now, the second course of action is actually a little bit more radical and a little bit more countercultural. Because where the first course of action is, look, take the grievance, has somebody decide on it for you. Notice what the second course of action is, verse 6 and 7. It's basically to bear the loss yourself, to suffer the loss, and to let it go. Verse 6. We'll pick it up, half of verse 5. He says, Can it be that there was no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But instead, brother goes the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. In other words, look, he says, look, if you've got this kind of grievance and you're burning each other, he says, like, that's, that's already a defeat. He says, why not instead rather suffer the wrong. Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and even your own brothers. So did you hear what he says? He says, look, rather than taking it up and having like this grievance and like, look, somebody needs to pay here. You need to pay. We need to get this thing figured out. Like you wronged me. We're going to make things right, right here and now. Pay up. Paul says, why not just suffer the loss? It's just money. You've got bigger fish to fry. There's way more important things in the world than money, isn't there? Yeah, is there? Paul's like, look, you're, you're people of the crucified and risen Jesus. The one who said, sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me. Don't worry, you're going to have treasures in heaven. Like, he's like, look, we're, we're people who hold our possessions lightly. So he might say to uh, Bill, who lost the horse, like, look, Bill, you're, you're wealthy. You've got plenty of horses. Just bear the loss. Let Bill go or let Bob go. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not saying that there's actually not a place for taking someone to court. I'm not saying that there's not a place for actually seeing to justice being done. In fact, sometimes there are times, there are places where to not call someone out, to not actually draw a line in the sand and to not hold them accountable would actually be to enable their continued dysfunctional, destructive behavior. And sometimes people just need to be called out and you need to put an end to it because if they wronged you, they're going to wrong someone else and then someone else after that. And so there's a place and there's a time, but it requires wisdom and discernment. But I think if we're honest, far too often what we get caught up in, in most of our grievances, when we've been hurt, is what? If you're anything like me, you want to make someone pay, right? You're like, look, you took my eye. I'm not just going to get your eye. I'm going to get your ear too and your hand and your foot while I'm at it so I can watch you hobble around with one eye. and you <laughs> But isn't that sometimes our spirit and our heart, you know? And, and you can even see it. It happens to us as a nation. If somebody attacks us, you know, it's like, you know, the immediate reaction is not necessarily justice. Often it's vengeance. We got to make those suckers pay, you know, like let's shock and awe them out of this world, you know. And, and there can be this visceral reaction that we have when somebody cuts us off. We want to, you know, just cut them off. And I don't know if you've ever felt like using your car as a weapon. Anybody in this room? Anybody want to admit that? Okay, we're going to come forward for prayer afterwards. But you have, and we have this tendency. And the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us in a different direction. Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong and be defrauded? And Paul was very serious about this. There's a book in the Bible, in fact, it's a little letter that was written to a man who Paul actually calls upon to bear a loss himself. And the man's name is Philemon. And as the story goes, Philemon is a slave owner. It's just what they did in the first century. It was as common to us as having an iPhone. It was just what they did. It was the world they lived in. And this guy had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And Onesimus actually, it seems he ripped Philemon off. He defrauded him of some way. Philemon, no doubt, was a man of some means, and he probably ripped him off, and then he ran off, and he got lost to become this anonymous guy in the city of Rome. And while he's there, as luck would have it, he runs into the Apostle Paul. And Paul shares the gospel with him, and I can just imagine how that gospel goes. He, he probably just said, you would never believe this, but the God of the universe took on human form and became flesh and dwelt among us. And he didn't just die the death of any man, he died the death of a common slave. Here is a God who knows you and is in solidarity with you. And Onesimus was just overcome by this great news, and he became a follower of Jesus, was baptized, a part of the family of God. And Paul looks at him and says, now you need to go back and confront Philemon. Tell him what you've done. And Onesimus is like, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> you know. And Paul's like, I'll write a letter. It'll get in the Bible, don't worry. <laughs> and so he writes this letter, and Onesimus carries it back to Philemon. 
And Philemon gets it, and in this letter, Paul does something that nobody else in the Greco-Roman world at that time did. There's no evidence of anyone doing this anywhere at any time. This is a total fresh act of imagination. It's like social imagination being, you know, like renewed right here. Paul says, Philemon, why don't you bear the loss and take Onesimus back, but not as a slave, as your brother. Now Philemon, he could have drug Onesimus off to court. Of course it would have found, found in favor of him. He could have beat him. He could have drained him, drive any resource he had. He could have had him killed. And if he didn't, in fact, what would have the neighbors thought? I mean, if this is what Philemon, if this is now what's happened to slaves, they're coming back, you're just forgiving their debts and you're treating them as part of now your family. What are the other slaves going to do? This might ultimately re- result in an entire liberation movement for slaves. But Paul calls them to this action and it's radically countercultural. And we stand back and we're like, how, like, how way, way, way ahead of his time, how on earth did Paul ever get this idea to tell someone who was so great and of such status and to have so much wealth to just forgive the debts of somebody who had wronged him and to take him back and not take the grievance? Where on earth did he learn that kind of behavior? Like, it wasn't, t- nobody else in the Greco Roman world was thinking of that. Well, you know. You know Jesus Christ, though he was rich, though from all eternity past he dwelt in glory, the highest of all status, the Lord over every Lord, the King over every King, the power and authority over every power and authority, and yet he divests himself and he becomes low, he becomes poor, so that in his poverty, And in his humiliating, shameful death on the cross, he might bear in himself all of the debts and all of the grievances and all of the wrongs of the world against God's own self. He bears it in himself so that you and I might be set free. And now one of the key marks of one of his followers is that they frequently release people of their debts. They don't hold things in. They bear it in themselves and they let it go. And of course, this is such a humanizing work because you know what what happens when people are set on payback? It's this ongoing cycle of retribution and violence and it just keeps going on and on and on. And so will you say this mean thing to me? I'm going to say it back to you and I'm going to add a little bit more. And then you say that back to me. Well, yeah, I'm going to say, you hurt me. I'm going to really hurt you. And then you hurt me. Well, we're going to hurt each other back. And it just goes on and on and on. And it needs to stop somewhere. And Paul says, let it end with you. Bear the grievance. Suffer the loss in and of yourself. And then release them. Now, I want you, though, to stand back, and I just want you to see what Paul is doing in our text. Paul, in some ways, is doing some ethical improv right now because he's got this situation that's arising in this pagan culture with these pagan court systems and how they're operating with all their injustice, and Paul's like, his imagination and his mind has been soaking in the event of Jesus Christ, 
His death and his resurrection, his glad self-giving love on the cross, his glorious return when he will judge the world in rightness and all creation will be made resurrection new and the healing, justice-bringing reign of God will break out and flood all of creation. He's soaked his mind in this beautiful story of Jesus. And he's like, what does it look like now to live in a world out of this new gospel-soaked imagination? Well, here it is with grievances. Let how you behave in this situation, number one, be shaped by the future. What God will ultimately do in Jesus, and then let it also be shaped by the past, what God has done in the cross of Jesus. His self-giving love and his justice-bringing rule. Let that inform our ethical life. And this means, friends, that, listen, the ethics of a follower of Jesus, like what Christianity is about, it's not about you checking boxes and being, you know, ultra-morally upright and all this stuff. That's all good, of course. It's really about inhabiting a world with an imagination soaked by the event of Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection and his glorious return, and letting that form and shape how you engage in relationships and how you engage in life. And this is what the New Testament is doing over and over and over again. It's taking the event of Jesus Christ and it's, this is the lens through which all of the rest of life is engaged in and lived. And so now the invitation to us is to have our own imaginations soaked in this good news and then to go out and treat your spouse or your parents or your children or your neighbors or your coworkers, deal with your problems in light of this news. Now you say, well, I can't always respond rightly. I mean, I'm not always, I'm always I have these gut visceral reactions. Yeah, that's why you need the church, amen? We need a community that is soaked in this story of the gospel, who is seeking to challenge each other and stimulate each other on to love and good works so that we might be a community, a people that is truly shaped by the gospel. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.